Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have my friend Becky Gardner with A Life of My Own, who is an executive function coach that actually you work with people statewide, not just in Spokane, but also you have quite a few clients over in Western Washington, correct? I do. I'm actually in three states right now. Oh, which states are those? Just for those that are listening, because we actually have people following (laughs) all over the place. Ten countries, actually. (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, as long as uh, Zoom or Meet or one of those video things is there, then it could be anywhere. But right now I have clients in Washington, Idaho and California. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Actually, I'll have to let a few of my other uh, providers know who actually have connections in California in particular. So um, today's topic that we wanted to talk about today was root causes for lack of motivation and lack of making progress. Because anybody who has any knowledge or have done any research on executive function knows that motivation and lack of progress is one of those things that we as parents and other individuals and even themselves know that this is a problem. Motivation and lack of progress. You can't make progress unless you have some motivation to get working. So I just wanted to touch base with you and just for parents that are listening who have young people who have executive functions, challenges or deficits, um, can you just talk to mm-hmm. us about, about what you believe some of the root causes are that um, creates that lack of motivation? Sure. Thanks for letting me uh, crash your podcast again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, I love um, I There's... In the neurodiversity realm, there are a lot of times you'll hear or you'll find yourself saying, whether you're the parent or the person with neurodiversity, oh, I'm just lazy, they're lazy, that they're doing it for attention. Um, There are all kinds of reasons ascribed to why a student doesn't make progress or stalls with their progress or appears from the outside or maybe the inside to be not motivated. But there is always, 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 a reason for that. Um, and so I think, you know, if we can find maybe not the explanation, hopefully we can, but an explanation or an area to make inroads, then students feel like they can get back on track with whatever, whatever it is that they've stalled in. And so I think the challenge becomes for those of us working with our students as parents or or I myself being neurodivergent when I feel like I've stalled out I'm trying to solve a thing or start a new habit or whatever it is that I'm doing to stop and figure out all right what is going on here what what could be the reasons behind it and then kind of picking away at those to try to regain steps so 
In looking at root causes, some things that come to mind for me in working with the students that I've worked with or in my own experience, either with my neurodiverse kids or my own neurodiversity, is there, so just to list off the reasons, possible reasons that come to my mind, and there are others, maybe it's sensory. Maybe there's a sensory thing going on that we didn't realize. Maybe it's pure executive functioning, and that's what we need to look at. Maybe it's anxiety-based or an old trauma or, you know, trauma that we might not even be aware of that has happened when we weren't there or we didn't know about. There's also on the list that's huge, maybe one of the biggest is shame. I know that stops me in my tracks a lot, especially if I need to self-advocate. Is there another type of neurodiversity getting in the way that we haven't thought about or realized? Because some of them are very broad or not necessarily the stereotypical thing that we think of, like dyslexia. It's not switching numbers. It's, I mean, there's all kinds of reading things that are dyslexia. And so maybe we don't even know about that type. And maybe that's something that we should explore further with a student or ourselves or whatever, or depression or attention, or, you know, there are a lot of things that tend to um, make up the whole picture of the neurodiverse person. Or is it access? Is it, it seems like they're not trying, but it's really that they can't access the material. Does it really come down to in the end, just simply an accommodation could help fix the issue or I don't know what, but those are kind of some of the areas that I think about that need further exploration and trying to figure out what's going on. Sure. Let's um, just kind of backtrack a little bit on some of those that you listed. When we talk about sensory differences, sensory challenges, how can that then create a lack of motivation? I mean, I'm, I can, in my mind, I can, I can make my own presumptions, but just for those that are listening that are less familiar, I'm just trying to build that picture for them to have better understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it could be an actual lack of motivation. I've tried to listen in class for the last seven years and I, it has never happened. And so I'm no longer motivated to keep trying. Yeah. The other thing we need to differentiate again, too, is when we talk about lack of motivation, that's how we perceive it. They're not motivated. It's they're really, it's not a lack of motivation. They're stuck. You know what I mean? So when we're talking about like the parents or schools or just, you know, people involved in these individuals' lives, they see it as a lack of motivation, but actually I like to think of it more as that they're stuck. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that was the differentiation that I was about to make. So yes, I totally agree. It can look like motivation or it can actually be motivation from sensory or any of these other things. So if we talk about the fact that a student could get stuck because of sensory um, differences, Mm -hmm. like how, what, what, what types of things would you expect to see if they're stuck because of sensory? So an experience can have such extreme sensory consequences that then the student or person is not able to do the thing because the, the sensory information that's coming in is so strong 
that they are not able to function. So, and it, it, you know, for those of us that don't have big sensory implications, it can be hard to imagine, you know, it's a, it's a normal classroom or it's a, you know, whatever the thing is, but when those sensory systems are hypo or hyper responsive to the input, the the person's experience is entirely different, which I mean, obviously they would be. So yeah, for sometimes it's not enough input. And so the student doesn't know where to go to from there. And sometimes a lot of the time, I mean, it's way too much input and it's just so overwhelming. It, it leads to shutdown. Yeah. And that can be in any of the senses. And so, you know, we tend to think of the typical five, right? Seeing, tasting, hearing, smelling, touch, but then there are an additional set of them. Interoception, you know, is it a bad headache or stomach ache? And they may not even realize that that's what's going on because it's a bad day in terms of their interoception. Yeah, there there are a lot of things to think about with sensory because there are all of the different systems. And then is it hyper or hypo? And and then what happens from that stage? What are kind of the the go to uh, strategies for that particular person? Is it to shut down? Is it to get hyperactive and run wild? Is it to, you know, and so any of them can be very disruptive. That is so true. I actually sometimes, you know, for trying to get parents to understand. So the hypo and hyper means that, you know, for instance, Cooper in our house, which is son, John's son, Cooper, who's significantly impacted by autism, he tends to be hyposensitive, meaning that he needs an abundance of sensory information for him to register just even a little bit. So he tends to like things in the extreme. Um, and then you have my son, Caleb, who is hyper sensitive, meaning that just a little bit of certain sensory um, stimulations, depending on the system can absolutely, it's very painful for him. It is just like his pain yeah. receptors in his body are overreacting and he is getting the sensation that he is in severe pain. So, you know, yeah, understanding yeah. that when you have, especially with the hypersensitive, the hypersensitivity tends to be a little bit harder because, you know, that means that that it's that fight or flight, you know, they're fighting a lot of what's going on in their environment, which under that circumstance, it is very understandable why that could actually get somebody stuck. If you have that sort of an onslaught of information, you aren't going to function at your best. It's just not possible. So the other thing too, is when you had mentioned that executive function can be a reason why a person is stuck or appears to look like they're not motivated. That is interesting because I feel like when you go through the list of executive functions of the brain, you can definitely see a correlation between how one is kind of married to another. You can't have, again, we're talking about lack of motivation and progress, but it makes a lot of sense that, you know, if another executive function, there's a challenge in another area of executive function, how that could also create then a person to be stuck when it comes to motivation and then of course making progress. So that makes total sense. Yeah. And I won't, we won't go through all the executive functions and which ones are kind of connected because um, if you've listened to any of our other podcasts, then you probably already are one step ahead. I think you're absolutely, when we mentioned anxiety and trauma, I can absolutely, we have talked, we actually did a whole podcast on anxiety and how that can be a real barrier for 
having motivation and actually just emotional regulation. I mean, anxiety really becomes challenge when you're trying to manage and work through and use your strength, executive function strengths to overcome some of your more weaknesses. But if you have debilitating anxiety, Uh it makes a lot of sense why that can put a person in a place where they're stuck. And again, for the untrained eye and someone that maybe is less informed, it does appear as though they are not motivated, which is not at all the case. Right. So I wanted to touch real quick on trauma because you mentioned trauma and I hadn't really thought of that as a means for creating a situation where a person gets stuck. Do you mind just kind of talking a little bit about trauma? And, and then also you, the other one I wanted to talk more on was the shame piece, because what we're talking about, usually you have, you know, like you start getting really down that internal self-talk um, is just really debilitating too. And it makes you have these feelings of shame that you're not worthy, that for some reason, you're less or not enough. And so I think, and again, that also creates elements of trauma as well, when you're constantly feeling like you're not enough. So would you mind just kind of talking a little bit about that as like a root cause specifically? So if people are listening and you have a kiddo, we have a lot of families who are fostering or have adopted children that are from a trauma background. If you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit more about the trauma and then that shame piece, just as like root causes and how that can manifest. Yes. I do not have a ton of specific information for trauma-informed work. It's not an area that I specialize in. Really refer people, clients out to get support when it comes to, if you identify that there's like, you know, a trauma that you would refer those clients or work in conjunction with another provider to be able to address some of these the trauma that they've experienced? Like, how do you, how, how do you tackle that yeah. provider? Yeah. Um, if we start heading into an area like that, that I don't have specific background or expertise in, then absolutely. I will refer out. Most of the students that I work with are at the same time getting therapy. And so a lot of times I will have the conversation. I'll, I'll, ask for permission to have the conversation with their therapist. And so we kind of, we do that in the background and then the therapist takes over from there. But a lot of times, because I work so closely with students on things that are pretty personal in nature, not everyone can have that one-on-one relationship where they talk to a student every however often it is. And so things will come up and trauma and past trauma more than anything else. I don't know that I've had this situation where there's a student involved in current trauma other than the shame and some of the ableism that affects them on a day-to-day basis. And most of the past trauma is related to ableism and disability and the way that they have been treated. So I do know that that really has a huge impact. And if there has been a similar situation in the past with trauma or perceived trauma or shame and anxiety. Those are all so closely related that it's not uncommon for students to get stuck. Like you say, they kind of hit a brick wall. And until that is 
sorted out, it's really tough to move forward. You know, we, because it's not my background, I will back up and go at it, you know, let their therapist work on that with them. And I will back up and go around to work on a different tech. But that information is so important and really needs to be known, um, you know, depending on the age of the student, they need to know for themselves and um, when this is going to pop up again. And, and if it does, it's not that they are lazy or a bad person or not trying or any of the hundred other things that they tell themselves. There's a something going on that needs to be resolved. And if they're younger, then certainly it would be the parents that would know and, and work through that information. So, yeah, that makes total sense. One thing that you mentioned in that um, last bit was ableism. And I've talked about ableism in other podcasts with other guests. And so what is interesting is that people's use and definition of ableism is kind of different depending on whether or not you are um, neurodiverse or whether you're neurotypical. So would you mind just explaining ableism? Because not everybody listens. I know it's shocking. Not everybody listens to every single podcast I ever put out there. So I want to make sure for those people that I know it's shocking, but I do have some people that just go through and look for my podcast on executive function, because that's really what their high focus is. And so I want to make sure that in the event they miss one of those other podcasts, you have a platform for understanding what ableism is. Yes. So ableism is like any of the other isms, the easiest, most direct reference would be racism. So having feelings about people based on their race is racism. And ableism is the same, having preconceived notions or feelings about people based on their ability or their disability or their functioning level or their whatever it is. So it is that grouping of people into buckets and treating them in a certain way based on whatever your belief is about that bucket. Yeah. So um, examples of this for just like the general public that may not be able to have a frame of reference is, you know, where I see ableism as it relates to like my son, Caleb, his challenges tend to be more invisible. And so when it comes out that he has autism and so he has modified assignments or shortened assignments or he gets to use a calculator to some of his neurotypical peers that they get really frustrated. It's not fair. How come he gets to have X, Y, and Z? And like, and so then it changes a perception of, you know, and it, you're grouping that person and those people in a few buckets. Oh, those people get, it's like the jokes about the short bus. Oh, you know, like, don't worry about him. He rode the short bus in yeah. school or whatever. And those are all jokes that are ableistic when it comes to people, yes. that, you know, towards people with disabilities. And so that's what ableism is. Um, and so it's always so interesting. Absolutely. You're the second neurodiverse individual who I've talked to, who we've talked about ableism and what that, how you would define that. And like I said, it's just interesting how it's a, that was a great explanation as was our other one. But again, it's different when you have a person who is neurotypical explain what ableism, their interpretation of ableism. So that's what, you know, mm. so. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So the other thing that you touched on, and I want to make sure, again, I just, as people are listening, I want to make sure that we are 
kind of defining some of the terms that we're using just so that we have better understanding. When you reference neurodiversity, like other neurodiversity um, characteristics that can cause limitations, would you mind explaining mm-hmm. what that means? You use that in the context of dyslexia and how that is, a, is an additional neurodiversity. And so would you mind just talking mm-hmm. about the term neurodiversity and how, why you would be considering dyslexia or other things like that to be a neurodiversity just for a point of context for people that are listening? Yeah. Happy to. Neurotypical describes the Joe average, right? It's um, neurologically average or neurologically typical. So in terms of the brain or nervous system and things work the way we in society expect them to work. So in the Um, end... We would talk, these would be the normal, I'm using air quotes here for those that are listening. These would be your normal people, right? Neurotypical. What in what, at one point in society, we would consider like the normal citizens of the world, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And if you break down the meanings, typical in, you know, mathematical terms and normal in mathematical terms is uh, uh, one of the types of average mean median mode you know it's people that fall inside the bell curve it describes the majority of the people in that culture then those of us outliers there's something about us that is different in our nervous system than the neurotypicals or the average or the normal people that fall inside that bell curve as you can imagine all of the different conditions that can be considered neurotypical I mean, neurodivergent, neurodiverse, neurodivergent, same thing. Um, Down syndrome is certainly a neurodiversity. Uh, Cerebral palsy is a neurodiversity. Some have physical with them, some do not. Um, But it's mostly because it's a neurodiversity. It's something is different about the thinking or the cognition or the... um, nervous system abilities of this neurodiverse group. So that could be ton of things. You know, it's it's the anxious, depressed, OCD, um, ADHD, autism, any learning disability or difference that you can put a label to and things that you can't put a label to. Those are diversities, just like any other type of diversity. It's just a difference from the cultural norm. Correct. And the reason why a lot of us prefer the term neurodiversity is because like for some individuals, they don't consider their, their differences to be a flaw or somehow like, you know, for instance, I have dyslexia. And I never would have considered myself to be disabled because it's not a disability for me. It's a neurodiversity for me because it's just some a, a different way that my brain works. I have to work and use different strategies in order to accomplish the same set of tasks. But neurodiversity is, you know, even as you said, a person that can have Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. So it's a very diverse term that's used in a lot of different contexts. And so I like to just make sure that we're talking about like the ton- context of how we are using it because it is not only we use the word neurodiversity, but it is a very 
very diverse word when we use it in different contexts. And so I always like to make sure that we, you know, put, create a platform for how we're using it when we're talking about different things. Well, and hopefully that it's, it's not different in different contexts. I mean, I think if you were a neurodiversity purist, it would it would include everyone that is in, could be included in that umbrella. And you're not leaving people out because that's kind of the point is that we want to be inclusive and have people feel included in culture, society, whether or not they are typical or whatever. People want to be part of the group, the part of the system, part of the, so, um, you know, there, there can also be sadly ableism within neurodiversity groups where, you know, my diversities, whatever, better, worse, different than your diversity. And that's just kind of really strange, but it does happen out there. And really happening more and more than I care to see. And part of the reason why I think we're seeing more of the ableism behavior amongst our neurodiversity community is I think because social media is so prevalent and it gives you a good platform to be able to put out some of those thoughts, feelings, and ideas. Um, And it's really exactly what you're saying. It's unfortunate that they don't realize that some of their beliefs are very ableism as well. It's very excluding to some groups of people that identify in the neurodiversity. And so it just is very sad, but that can be an entirely different podcast, which I've talked about um, intermittently and a lot of little podcasts, but it's that alone, the neurodiversity movement, because that is actually, there is a neurodiversity movement out there and there is definitely a lot of thoughts and beliefs and some, and on both ends of the spectrum in terms of like, you know, of, of the belief of kind of that ableism within that community. And so that would be, again, a totally different, a totally different podcast. So when it comes to talking about root causes, we had identified a lot of root causes that we see that you see end up being factors in students being stuck or appear to have lack of motivation. Um, is there anything that you would then, for those parents or those individuals, maybe, you know, if you are a neurodiverse individual and you're listening to this, is there anything that you would like to just like offer just in terms of suggestions, recommendations, readings? Certainly we're going to encourage them to reach out to you because this is obviously an area of expertise. This is where you work as an executive function coach and helping people to get unstuck and of course have a life Mm -hmm. of their own. So what types Mm -hmm. of... Um, how do you, what would you recommend to like, if you, again, I'm talking, I'm talking little nuggets that you could maybe offer to those that are listening. The one thing that you said that really resonated with me is be really careful about not falling into that ableism classification. In other words, be thinking about the language yeah. you're using, describing how you perceive their behavior. Because again, you know, I have yeah. yet to see anyone that just like woke up and just said, you know what? I want to accomplish absolutely nothing through the span of my life. I'm just going to sit here and be a couch potato. Like people, they're frustrated right. and want things and want, you know, to have, you know, access to all the things, their hopes and dreams. And so is there anything that you right. kind of offer us in this realm of like you sharing your knowledge, your wealth of information with us? I, I think a lot of it really is exposure to 
whatever it is that fits. There's a, a book, The Reason That I Jump, that is being made into a movie. And it was written by young Japanese, but he wasn't even a young man yet. I feel like he was 13-year-old boy with autism. He was nonverbal and he then wrote multiple books. And um, the reason that I jump is his book uh, describing his experience. And this was put out years ago and it is currently being made into a movie and it shows the assumptions that those of us that aren't side that person, um, the assumptions that we make are huge and their experience is their experience and those kinds of things whatever your area is there are resources and first person accounts out there that i think really is a very important place to start because you know my perceptions not your perception we have different experiences different backgrounds how could we know how the other person is feeling we really can't and so just first person accounts is is would be my biggest first suggestion and then learning from people in the field and that's not necessarily providers like myself at all because again that's not a lived experience. I think that people that really have the best knowledge are the people that have lived the experience most similar to whatever it is you're trying to solve. And that's where real nuggets are found. The, the people that have been through it and then share their knowledge are their gold. And the rest of us are, you know, guessing at it, honestly. <laughs> Well, and I think you're fine tuning your craft. You know what I mean? Because as you are working within your field, you're encountering more and more people and experiences where, again, if nothing else, you can draw off of the experience that you had with another student to help you be successful. So that if you encounter another young person that has similarities, at least you then have that, you know, encyclopedia of knowledge that you've gleaned um, from having that experience to be able to rely on. That's the part of the reason why people uh, oftentimes say that I'm a walking encyclopedia of autism information. And you want to know why that is? It's because that they are not my personal experiences, but I have, um, I am just very blessed to be able to have encountered and worked with hundreds and hundreds of families and kiddos on the autism spectrum and even adults now. Right. Um, and right. that creates that knowledge base, that encyclopedia that I store in my head. I'm working really hard to try and get it out there. So Anna and Andrea um, right. have some of this information. So in the event I get hit by a bus, that information will be somewhere in the world. But again, you're adding information to your encyclopedia. And a lot of what I do too is exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. I connect people. I connect people like other families that were in that same situation that had to overcome that barrier or struggle. And then I introduce those two families so that again, that person that's the closest to that situation because they had gone through it and had some success in finding some support right. or um, services ends up being the best person for them. And so I think that is a really good piece of advice. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there are encyclopedias of knowledge and they are the most factual realistic accounts are either one of those sources. I've had those lived experience or people that have worked with hundreds of 
people (laughs) and, you know, can a broader picture because otherwise you can't get a broad picture because neurodiversities are so incredibly different as we were talking about before, you know, my neurodiversity doesn't look at all like my son's or my daughter's. So yes, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. That's a really good point. Well, thank you, Becky, for joining me and talking about, you know, this perception of motivation and what that actually looks like. And I guess one, another wonderful piece of kind of context that you built for me today is, is that never in the world would we ever go up to someone, say, for instance, like myself, I lost my son, Isaac, Um, at no point would anyone walk up to me and say, get over it. You know what I mean? You just need to move on. You just need to get over it and move on. We would never do that. And so I think if you put that in context of someone who appears to have no motivation, oh, you have, you're just lacking motivation. Get over it. Move on. Like figure it out. Like dig deep, you know, persevere. Um, Again, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't tell a grieving parent to get over their child, then I think we need to be like, just have a better perspective of the fact that, you know, no one wakes up and wants to have a lack of motivation and not be able to make progress exactly. on those school lives. And I think if you put it in that context, I think it's going to create a place of better empathy for our community. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the reason to read those, you know, the reason I jump and I'm reading into worlds right now, and it's exactly that that you it's, the frustration level that they experience in trying, they're trying harder than anybody else in the room that they're not able to get there because of some root causes that people can't figure out. So if we can go to um, get connected with people, be able to help figure out root causes or do a lot of research or check in with um, other parents or other neurodiverse or uh, if you've got a professional evaluation, the reasons are there. There's always a reason. It's always valid. The really hard thing is to figure out what it is. So those are, like I said, those are just broad categories, but within each of those, there are hundreds of actual reasons. Yes, that is so true. So giving those broad categories may make it more, not difficult, but overwhelming to try to figure it out. But yeah, research and checking in with trusted people. Yeah. Time well spent on trying to figure out the root cause of that for sure. Well, thank you for joining me for this podcast of Isaac's Autism Wild. We are going to put in the show notes. Anna, our producer, was very kind and um, found the reason I jump, the inner voice of a 13-year-old boy with autism. It is, um, how would you pronounce the author's name? Naoki. Sheeta, I believe. Okay. Um, so we will put the link to that book. And then the second one that you mentioned in the show notes, so people if, who are interested can find those. So with that, we will wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.